0: To conclude our conference, we have uh, a very distinguished uh, lecturer, uh, Judge William H. Pryor, who's a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Before reaching the bench, Judge Pryor served as Attorney General of Alabama from 1997 to 2004. When he was first appointed, he was the youngest Attorney General in the nation, and in his 2002 reelection, he received the highest percentage of votes of any statewide candidate. Judge Pryor is a graduate of Tulane Law School, where he was Editor-in-Chief of the Tulane Law Review and a charter member and president of the Tulane Federalist Society. After graduation, he clerked for Judge John Minor Wisdom of the Fifth Circuit, for whom the Fifth Circuit uh, Courthouse is now named in New Orleans. Uh, And uh, I clerked on the Fifth Circuit, but sometime later, Judge Wisdom had already uh, retired, but uh, he has this great saying about the Fifth Circuit that it's the best place to be a judge. No offense to the 11th, I guess, but although he was talking about the the whole thing, the, the old one that combined the, the two circuits, that uh, because in Louisiana, of course, you have the, the civil law, the Napoleonic Code. In uh, Mississippi, you have bad law, and in Texas, you have no law at all. <laughs> Following his clerkship, Judge Pryor engaged in a a private practice in Birmingham and was an adjunct professor of admiralty at Samford University's Cumberland School of Law. Since 2006, he's been a visiting professor at the University of Alabama Law School. He is also a member of the American Law Institute, the Board of Advisory Editors of the Tulane Law Review, and of the Yale Law and Policy Review. He's a Life Fellow of the Alabama Law Foundation, a former Vice President of the Alabama Center for Law and Civic Education, and a former Chairman of the Federalist Society's Federalism and Separation of Powers Practice Group. A champion debater in college, uh, Judge Pryor has debated at Federalist Society National Lawyers Conventions, on NPR, and at the Oxford Union. His... Remarks today are entitled Religious Liberty and Religious Judges, and perhaps he'll even touch on, maybe that'll have to be in the Q&A, the question that uh, Professor Laycock posed at lunch, how do you enact a gay rights law in Alabama?
1: Good afternoon. Uh, It's it's nice to be back at Cato. Uh, My first visit to Cato, Soon after um, my then appointment as Attorney General, uh, I came then uh, as a critic of the state-sponsored lawsuits against the tobacco industry. Uh, My next um, engagement with with Cato came uh, at a conference that Roger uh, sponsored uh, entitled The Rule of Law in the Wake of Clinton. I guess that could be in the wake of Clinton, Roman numeral one, uh, and, and, in which I uh, contributed uh, with remarks about the war on guns. Uh, and uh, this is the first time I've had the pleasure um, of coming back to Cato uh, as a federal circuit judge. Um, it's nice to be back um, and uh, to see so many friends. Uh, one of the main re- reasons that many Europeans came to the new world, was to escape religious persecution and to exercise their religious faiths. Congregationalists established Plymouth Colony in 1620. Puritans settled in New England to practice their purified version of Anglicanism. William Penn and other Quakers established what would later be known as Pennsylvania. Catholics sought refuge in Maryland. Sometimes the new Americans then engaged in religious discrimination against others, especially against Catholics and Jews. But by the founding era, Americans reached a fundamental agreement about the need to protect religious liberty. Of course, the devil remained in the details. Tocqueville wrote that when he arrived in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck his attention. And the longer he stayed there, the more he perceived the great political consequences resulting from this state of things. He explained that in France, he had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom pursuing courses diametrically opposed to each other. But in America, he found that they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. And the Americans he encountered mainly attributed the peaceful dominion of religion in their country to the separation of church and state. Some say today that we are at a crossroads, that the American consensus about religious liberty is changing, perhaps even breaking down. If we hope to reestablish a consensus, we should turn to history for guidance about how to protect religious liberty. American history offers a lesson that the Friends of Liberty at the Cato Institute can especially appreciate. History teaches that our government and its laws should respect the right of religious people to be let alone. Throughout our history, Americans have turned to law to protect religious liberty. The Constitution initially prohibited religious tests for public office. The First Amendment later provided that Congress could neither respect an establishment of religion nor prohibit its free exercise. The Supreme Court eventually ruled that the religion clauses of the First Amendment applied to the states under the 14th Amendment. State constitutions provided similar and occasionally even greater protections for religious liberty, and both Congress and state legislatures enacted laws to accommodate religious believers in a variety of of circumstances. Laws, of course, require judges to apply them and the role of a judge also merits consideration in any discussion about protecting religious liberty. If we respect the right of religious people to be let alone, then we make, m- make the task of a judge, whether religious or not, easier, but the converse is not true. If we fail to respect the right of religious people to be let alone, then we threaten to disable some religious judges in cases about religious liberty from performing their role in our government. To examine this matter, I will review two issues. First, I will discuss how our legal tradition of protecting religious liberty has respected the right of religious people to be let alone. Second, I will discuss the role of a religious judge in upholding that tradition and how a different conception of religious liberty affects a religious judge. Let us turn first to modern history about how the law has protected religious liberty. In 1990, in Employment Division v. Smith, the Supreme Court ruled that Oregon could prohibit the sacramental use of peyote without violating the Free Exercise Clause of the 1st and 14th Amendments. With Justice Scalia writing for a five-member majority, the Smith Court decided that religious believers enjoy no constitutional exemption from valid and neutral laws of general applicability. Justice O'Connor, writing in a concurring opinion, favored requiring the government to justify any substantial burden on religiously motivated conduct by compelling state interest and by means narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. In reaction to the decision in Smith, Americans across the political spectrum supported the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which adopted a test like Justice O'Connor's rule of strict scrutiny for any governmental burden on religious conduct. Then Representative Charles Schumer introduced that legislation in the House, where it had 170 co-sponsors and passed by a unanimous voice vote. In the Senate, where the legislation passed by a vote of 97 to three, Senators Orrin Hatch and Edward Kennedy served as lead sponsors. The coalition that supported the legislation included the American Civil Liberties Union, the Christian Legal Society, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, Concerned Women for America, the American Humanist Association, the National Council of Churches, the National Association of Evangelicals and People for the American Way. Representative Nancy Pelosi urged her colleagues in the House to support the legislation, quote, because it protects an individual's religious freedom from unnecessary government interference. She stated religious freedom is one of the founding principles of this nation. Representative Gerald Nadler, agreed and said if there's any if there is a shared american value it is the commitment to religious liberty when he signed the legislation president william clinton declared its near unanimous support a quote miracle although the supreme court later nullified applying the act to the states in city of bernie versus flores in 1997 with justice scalia again in major- in the majority and justice o'connor this time in dissent At least 22 states passed their own versions of the act. For example, while I served as a state state attorney general, the voters of Alabama ratified the Religious Freedom Amendment to the state constitution, and Congress passed by unanimous consent and President Clinton signed the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which imposed a rule of strict strict scrutiny for burdens of religious liberty by recipients of federal funds. Now the passage of those laws seems like ancient history. The political consensus that produced that kind of legislation no longer exists. The American Civil Liberties Union has publicly renounced its earlier support for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Deputy Legal Director Louise Melling, who just spoke to us, explained, for more than 15 years we have been concerned about how the act could be used to discriminate against others. Barry Lynn of Americans United for Separation of Church and State has called the act a sword to harm others. Professor Marty Lederman has described the coalition that supported the act as fraying at the seams and in danger of permanent disintegration. And recent attempts to adopt versions of the act at the state level have encountered stiff resistance and varying success. There was always less of a consensus about Smith in the academy especially among conservatives, as eminent scholars debated the correctness of that decision as a matter of constitutional law. Immediately after the decision, Michael McConnell argued in the Harvard Law Review that the historical record cast doubt on Smith's interpretation of the Free Exercise Clause. But Jerry Bradley rebutted McConnell's reading and argued that Smith rightly jettisoned the conduct exemption because it is manifestly contrary to the plain meaning of the Free Exercise Clause. Philip Hamburger also sided with Justice Scalia's majority opinion in Smith. Hamburger acknowledged that throughout our history in various statutes and even state constitutions, Americans expressly granted religious exemptions from some specified civil obligations. But he argued that our country never recognized a general constitutional right of religious exemption from civil laws. Eugene Volokh agreed with the decision in Smith, but he also favored the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a legislative accommodation. I do not intend to take sides in the debate about what the Constitution requires or even what kind of legislative accommodation works best. As a federal circuit judge, I am obliged to adhere to the decisions of the Supreme Court in interpreting the Constitution and obliged to apply the laws passed by Congress. You won't hear me criticize the late Justice Scalia's decision in Smith or the laws passed by Congress afterward. Even Justice Scalia acknowledged in Smith that quote, values that are protected against government interference through enshrinement in the Bill of Rights are not thereby banished from the political process. And reasonable people can disagree about whether a legislative delegation for the judiciary to measure all laws and regulations against a standard of strict scrutiny works better or worse than specific legislative accommodations for particular burdens on religious liberty. The more pressing question today is, what fundamental principle should inform our overarching mix of constitutional protection and legislative accommodation for religious liberty. History offers us a lesson. Our tradition of protecting religious liberty reveals the fundamental principle on which we formed our earlier consensus. Our legal tradition of protecting religious liberty has respected a right summed up in a phrase familiar to libertarians, the right to be let alone. Louis Brandeis and his law partner, Samuel Warren, first used that phrase in 1890 in their seminal article in the Harvard Law Review entitled The Right to Privacy. That article was about the common law of torts. But 38 years later, in his famous dissenting opinion in Olmstead versus United States, Justice Brandeis argued that the Constitution protected that right too. He wrote, The makers of our Constitution undertook to secure conditions favorable to the pursuit of happiness. They recognized the significance of man's spiritual nature, of his feelings, and of his intellect. They knew that only a part of the pain, pleasure, and satisfactions of life are to be found in material things. They sought to protect Americans in their beliefs, their emotions, and their sensations. They conferred as against the government the right to be let alone, the most comprehensive of rights and the right most valued by civilized men. Take note that even though he was writing about the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, Justice Brandeis mentioned man's spiritual nature and his beliefs as part of the right to be let alone. He recognized that the right to be let alone informs many areas of law, from the common law of torts to constitutional law. That principle also informs our protection of religious liberty, whether as part of the minimum guarantees of the Constitution, or as part of our tradition of legislative accommodation. Both James Madison and Thomas Jefferson wrote about religious liberty in terms that could be equated with the right to be let alone. Madison wrote, in the first point of his Memorial and Remonstrance against religious assessments in 1785, that the religion then of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. Madison understood religious beliefs as a species of property and wrote that, quote, conscience is the most sacred of all property. Jefferson wrote in a bill for uh, for establishing religious freedom, that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government, nor under its jurisdiction. Our country has provided three kinds of protection for religious liberty that illustrate our tradition of respecting the right of religious people to be let alone. The first concerns religious worship. The second involves the institutional liberty of religious communities, and the third involves not compelling religious people to violate their sacred beliefs when they pose no threat to others. The founding generation provided robust protections for religious worship. Section two of the Delaware Declaration of Rights in 1776, for example, provided that all men have a natural and unalienable right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences and understandings and that no man ought or of right can be compelled to attend any religious worship or maintain any ministry contrary to or against his own free will and consent, and that no authority can or ought to be vested in or assumed by any power whatever that shall in any case interfere with or in any matter control the right of conscience and the free exercise of religious worship. The Pennsylvania Declaration of Rights in 1776 had nearly identical language about religious worship. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 provided, and no subject shall be hurt, molested, or restrained in his person, liberty, or estate for worshiping God in the manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience or for his religious profession or sentiments, provided he doth not disturb the public peace or obstruct others in their religious worship. And the Virginia Act for establishing religious freedom in 1786 declared that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinion in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. The Free Exercise Clause protects religious worship from purposeful discrimination. A few years after the decision in Smith, the Supreme Court decided in Church of the Lukumi I that the Free Exercise Clause prohibited municipal ordinances regulating the killing of animals, where the many exceptions in those ordinances could be understood only as targeting the animal sacrifices of the Santeria religion. Justice Kennedy wrote for a unanimous court, the Free Exercise Clause commits government itself to religious tolerance, and upon even slight suspicion that proposals for state intervention stem from animosity to religion or distrust of its practices, all officials must pause to remember their own high duty to the Constitution and to the rights it secures. Congress and state legislatures have also provided accommodations for religious worship. During prohibition, religious communities were allowed to obtain and consume sacramental wine. In Smith, Justice Scalia noted that unlike Oregon, some state laws allow Native Americans to use peyote in religious worship. The Federal Controlled Substances Act provides that accommodation. And the Supreme Court has ruled under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that the Controlled Substance Act cannot be enforced against those who use waska tea in their religious worship. The founders also recognized that religious liberty means that communities of believers enjoy organizational or institutional freedom. In 1783, the Vatican asked Congress to approve a bishop for America but Congress responded that it had, quote, no authority to permit or refuse an appointment because the subject being purely spiritual is without the jurisdiction and powers of Congress. In 1806, Secretary of State James Madison informed Bishop John Carroll that the selection of a Catholic bishop for the Louisiana Territory was an entirely ecclesiastical matter left to the church alone. And in 1811, President Madison vetoed a bill incorporating the Protestant Episcopal Church in the town of Alexandria as violating the Establishment Clause. The Supreme Court has upheld under the First Amendment the institutional liberty of religious communities throughout our history. In 1872, in Watson versus Jones, the court refused to second guess the decision of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church that resolved a dispute between anti-slavery and pro-slavery factions over who controlled the property of the Walnut Street Presbyterian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. The court stated that whenever the questions of discipline or of faith or ecclesiastical rule, custom, or law have been decided by the highest of these church judicatories to which the matter has been carried, the legal tribunals must accept such decisions as final and as binding on them. In 1952, in Kedrov versus St. Nicholas Cathedral, the court ruled that the right to use the Russian Orthodox Cathedral in New York City was strictly a matter of ecclesiastical government, the power of the Supreme Church authority of the Russian Orthodox Church to appoint the ruling hierarch of the Archdiocese of North America. And in 1976, in Serbian Eastern Orthodox Diocese versus Milovojevic, the Supreme Court refused to allow a state judiciary to resolve a dispute about the authority of a bishop to control American church property. The court explained that the First Amendment permits hierarchical religious organizations to establish their own rules and regulations for internal discipline and government and to create tribunals for adjudicating disputes over these matters. More recently, in 2012, the Supreme Court unanimously decided that federal courts cannot decide cases of employment discrimination involving religious ministers. In Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church versus the EEOC, the court explained that allowing... The government to decide which individuals may minister to the faithful violates both the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. The court ordered the dismissal of a suit filed by a called teacher in a Lutheran school and in dicta stated too that the state cannot compel the ordination of women by the Catholic Church or by an Orthodox Jewish seminary. In distinguishing Smith, the court stated that Smith involved government regulation of only outward physical acts. The present case, in in contrast, concerns governmental interference with an internal church decision that affects the faith and mission of the church itself. Legislatures, too, have accorded religious institutions accommodations to exercise their liberty. Churches commonly enjoy an exemption from certain taxes and religious orders, schools, and hospitals often operate as charitable nonprofits subject to fewer taxes and regulatory burdens. The founders also recognized the need to avoid compelling religious people to violate their beliefs. In the Oaths Clause of the Constitution, the founders required both federal and state officers to bind themselves by, quote, oath or affirmation to the Constitution. The presidential oath, Two allows an affirmation. The allowance of an affirmation accommodated Quakers, who refused to swear oaths based on Matthew 5, to 37. Before the founding, most colonies provided that accommodation to Quakers, and Jews in Georgia were allowed to omit the words on faith of a Christian from the naturalization oath in 1740. The federal prohibition of religious tests also accommodated Catholic and Jewish officeholders who would not profess a belief in Protestantism. Military conscription offers an example of legislative accommodation that avoids compelling religious people to violate their faiths. The Continental Congress, for example, provided the following accommodation for Quakers and Mennonites who refused on religious grounds to bear arms. As there are some people who, from religious principles, cannot bear arms in any case, this Congress intend no violence to their consciences, but earnestly recommend it to them to, construe, to contribute liberally in this time of universal calamity to the release, relief of their distressed brethren in the several colonies, and to do all other services to their oppressed country, which they can consistently with their religious principles. As Michael McConnell has explained, this policy recognized the superior claim of religious conscience over civil obligation, even at a time of universal calamity, and left the appropriate accommodation to the judgment of the religious objectors. Another common accommodation involves not compelling clergy to testify about confidential communications. In 1813, in People v. Phillips, a New York court ruled that requiring a catholic priest to identify a penitent who confessed a, a crime would have violated the free exercise guarantee of the state constitution and a new york statute in 1828 provided no minister of the gospel or priest of any denomination whatsoever shall be allowed to disclose any confessions made to him in his professional character in the course of discipline enjoined by the rules or privilege or practice of such denomination. Today, court rules of evidence generally recognize a privilege for confidential communications with clergy. Two major decisions by the Supreme Court in the last century also accommodated religious believers by not compelling them to violate their beliefs. Neither decision was based on the religion clauses of the First Amendment, but both decisions deserve mention as examples of constitutional law protecting the right of religious people to be let alone. The first decision, Pierce versus Society of the Sisters in 1925, recognized the right of parents to educate their children in religious and other private schools. After Oregon enacted a compulsory education law that required required children to attend public schools, two schools, a Catholic primary school and a military academy for boys, challenged the law as violating the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court ruled that the Oregon law unreasonably interfered with the liberty of parents and guardians to protect the upbringing and education of children under their control. And the Supreme Court recognized that right in terms that could be described as the right to be let alone. The court described the private schools as, quote, engaged in a kind of undertaking not inherently harmful, but long regarded as useful and meritorious. And the court found, quote, nothing in the present records to indicate that they have failed to discharge their obligation to paint patrons, students, or the state. Against that record, the court stated, the child is not the cre- mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. The second decision, West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett in 1943, recognized the right of children of Jehovah's Witnesses to refuse to perform a stiff arm salute to an American flag and to to refuse to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in a public school each day. The Jehovah's Witnesses considered the salute and pledge to be a form of idolatry. School officials expelled the children for refusing to perform the salute and pledge, and state authorities threatened to prosecute their parents for causing the children's delinquency. The Supreme Court, with Justice Jackson writing, ruled that the West Virginia law compelling students to perform the salute and to recite the pledge violated their right to free speech. Although the court declined to base its decision on the religion clauses, Jackson described the principle at stake in terms consistent with the long tradition of protecting religious believers. Jackson wrote, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. If there are any circumstances which permit an exception, they do not now occur to us. Note his use of the terms orthodox, religion, faith, and confess. Jackson also described the case in terms consistent with the right to be let alone. He wrote, the freedom asserted does not bring them into collision with rights asserted by any other individual, nor is there any question in this case that their behavior is peaceable and orderly. Their sole conflict is between authority and rights of the individual. Jackson described the Jehovah's Witnesses as standing on a right of self-determination in matters that touch individual opinion and personal attitude. Justice Black, joined by Justice Douglas in a separate concurring opinion, also described the case in terms of accommodating religious believers. He wrote, the ceremonial, when enforced against conscientious objectors, more likely to defeat than to serve its high purpose, is a handy implement for disguised religious persecution. And he described the religious believer's objection in terms consistent with the right to be let alone. Black wrote, we cannot say that a failure because of religious scruples to assume a particular physical position and to repeat the words of a patriotic formula creates a grave danger to the nation. Such a statutory exaction is a form of test oath, and the test oath has always been abhorrent in the United States. Perhaps the most interesting opinion in Barnett is the dissenting opinion of Justice Frankfurter, whose views on judicial restraint transition to my final point about religious judges. Justice Frankfurter wrote in terms that call to mind Justice Scalia's opinion in Smith, Quote, it by no means follows that legislative power is wanting whenever a general non-discriminatory civil regulation in fact touches conscientious scruples or religious beliefs of an individual or a group. Justice Frankfurter viewed the Jehovah's Witnesses as in no position to complain when, quote, this court denied the right of a state to require its children to attend public schools citing Pierce. He offered a stirring call to judicial restraint in the following personal terms. One who belongs to the most vilified and persecuted minority in history is not likely to be insensible to the freedoms guaranteed by our Constitution. Were my purely personal attitude relevant, I should wholeheartedly associate myself with the general libertarian views in the court's opinion representing as they do the thought and action of a lifetime. But as judges, we are neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Catholic nor agnostic. I share Justice Frankfurter's perspective about religion and judging. Although religion may properly inform a judge to take his oath seriously, to be truthful and diligent in his work, and to respect the rights of others, Religion does not and should not govern a judge's decision about any issue in any case. But that fact does not mean that a judge can ignore his religious faith in his work. Judge James Buckley once wrote, a judge, of course, is no more relieved of moral responsibility for his work than anyone else in either private or public life. The Catechism of the Catholic Church explains, for example, freedom makes man a moral subject. When he acts deliberately, man is, so to speak, the father of his acts, human acts. That is, acts that are freely chosen in consequence of a judgment of conscience can be morally evaluated. They are either good or evil. So what happens when judicial duty and moral duty, as informed by religion, conflict? For a Catholic, like me, the church offers a rich body of teaching that assists a judge in identifying a conflict. When does the performance of a judicial act become morally unacceptable for a Catholic? The answer is rarely. Ordinarily, the immoral act of a party does not make the judge assigned to his case responsible for that immoral act. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches the morality of human acts depends on one, the object chosen, two, the end in view or the intention, and three, the circumstances of the action. A morally good act requires the goodness of the object, of the end, and of the circumstances together. An evil end corrupts the action, even if the object is good in itself, such as praying and fasting in order to be seen by men. Conversely, a good intention does not make behavior that is intrinsically disordered good or just. The end does not justify the means. For a Catholic, there are two kinds of cooperation with evil that must be avoided. The first is called formal cooperation, which occurs when the cooperator shares the evil intent of the actor. Formal cooperation with evil is always morally wrong, but it is an unlikely problem for a judge who must apply the law impartially. That is, without adopting as the judge's own end the object sought by a party who seeks relief from a court. The other, and for a judge, more likely kind of cooperation with evil is called material cooperation. Material cooperation occurs when the cooperator assists the actor by performing an act that is not necessarily evil. Whether material cooperation is morally acceptable depends on whether there is a sound reason for the cooperation, such as avoiding a worse harm, whether the cooperator is remote or proximate, whether the cooperation, that is, is remote or proximate, and whether the cooperator avoids the danger of scandal. The graver the evil, then the more serious the reason for cooperation must be to be justifiable. Two of these conditions for material cooperation are ordinarily satisfied in the performance of judicial work. A judge has more than a good reason to apply the law impartially in every case because the performance of that duty in a constitutional republic is a fundamental safeguard for the protection of human liberty. The resources of the judiciary are also scarce, so a judge is ordinarily obliged to perform his share of the work of the judiciary. The performance of the judicial function is likely to be remote from the intended evil act of a party before the court. The typical scenario is where the judge determines that the law does not empower the government to interfere with an individual's freedom to commit an immoral act. And when the government threatens an individual's religious liberty, laws that respect an individual's right to be let alone empowers the judge to shield an individual from unjust injury. A judge must be attentive to the third condition for acceptable material cooperation, avoiding the problem of scandal. Scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The catechism explains anyone who uses the power at his disposal in such a way that it lends others to do wrong becomes guilty of scandal and responsible for the evil that he has directly or indirectly encouraged. The catechism also states scandal can be provoked by laws or institutions, by fashion or opinion. For judges and lawyers, there is a special danger of scandal because scandal is grave when given by those who by nature or office are obliged to teach and educate others. There are some circumstances of material cooperation that raise serious issues of proximity and potential scandal. A Catholic trial judge in a state court, who must decide whether to sentence a murderer to death or to grant permission for a minor to have an abortion, would have to consider whether he or she is proximately cooperating with an evil act and avoiding scandal. But a Catholic federal judge is far less likely to face this kind of proximity or potential scandal. Catholic legal scholars have concluded, for example, that a federal appellate judge does not either proximately cooperate with a potential evil or cause scandal when he upholds a death sentence. To affirm a sentence is not to approve it, but to say that the trial court did its job. Justice Scalia, in a lecture at the Dominican House of Studies here in the District of Columbia a month before he passed away, made the same point about a case where the law does not empower a judge to interfere with a woman's choice to have an abortion. The more likely scenario for a federal judge is that his cooperation with another's evil act will be remote, dictated by law, and faithful to a duty that more often protects our freedom in a noble and necessary manner. Allow me an example outside the judicial realm. A Catholic mail carrier rightly respects the rules of privacy and prompt delivery for get-well cards, boxes of holy Bibles, and life-saving medications while following the same rules for delivering pornography. A judge similarly applies the law impartially in a variety of cases where the law protects the poor, victims of wrongdoing, the integrity of the family, and religious freedom. And the judge respects the law when it does not empower him to prevent a third party from committing an immoral act. This framework breaks down when we no longer view religious liberty as a matter of the right to be let alone. Think about some easy examples. A Catholic trial judge would consider it immoral to punish a Catholic priest for refusing to divulge a penitent sacramental confession. And if our country were to reinstate prohibition of alcohol, Without the earlier accommodations for religious people, a Catholic trial judge would consider it immoral to sentence a priest for celebrating mass with wine. These examples would probably create a moral dilemma for many religious judges. I suspect that religious judges of many faiths, for example, would be uncomfortable punishing a Catholic priest for refusing to divulge a confession or punishing a Quaker for refusing to bear arms for his country. A religious judge would also likely feel obliged to respect the right of a family to educate their children in a religious school. Now consider a contemporary problem. Whether a Catholic or a Southern Baptist judge would be comfortable punishing an employer, for example, an order of nuns or a seminary, for refusing to pay for an employee's abortion or sterilization. Our country must grapple with the fact that many Americans no longer view religious liberty the same way. Ilya Shapiro explained this fact after the Hobby Lobby decision. He wrote that an exception from a mandate is hardly coercive and an exemption would harm third parties only if we think those third parties have a right to force others to pay for their goods or services. He explained that Americans have become so accustomed to government power as the norm, providing all manner of goods and benefits that resisting state action has begun to look anomalous. Or as Megan McArdle put it for Bloomberg View, the long compromise worked out between the state and religious groups, do what you want within very broad limits, but don't expect the state to promote it, is breaking down in the face of a shift in the way we view rights and the role of government in public life. I would put it this way. Many Americans have forgotten our long tradition of respecting the right of religious people to be let alone. Shapiro and Ricardo have identified only half the problem. If we cast aside the right of religious people to be let alone and replace that right with a new conception of freedom, then we will do more than create new problems for religious private citizens. We will also create unprecedented problems for religious judges. Our country is more likely to regain a consensus in favor of protecting religious liberty by adhering to its traditional understanding of freedom and not by reimagining it. That is, Americans can reach a consensus by sharing James Madison's view that conscience, is the most sacred of all property. And Thomas Jefferson's view that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government nor under its jurisdiction. We should do so by reaffirming that religious people enjoy what Justice Brandeis called the most comprehensive of rights and the right most valued by civilized men, the right to be let alone.
0: Thank you. Um, By our schedule, uh, that's it for this segment, so um, we'll move right to my colleague Trevor Burris who has a few uh, closing, summarizing uh, remarks about the conference.
2: Thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, I am not religious myself, in fact, for most of my life. I probably would have been described as somewhat of a gadfly atheist. I still consider myself an atheist. If I started at Cato, before I had a publication record, if you Google my name, the most popular thing you'd find is an article I wrote called 10 Reasons Christianity is Wrong, which you could still find if you'd like to read what I wrote when I was 22. Uh, But of course, my religiosity, or lack thereof, is not terribly relevant to the topic at hand, which is part of the point. Protecting religious liberty is about protecting my liberty, just like protecting free speech is about protecting my speech, which is why I'm thrilled to have taken part in putting this conference on. By having the courage of their convictions, religious believers have done the gen- have done the general public great service in fighting for freedom. As the judge mentioned with Jehovah's Witnesses, the list of cases that Jehovah's Witnesses in particular have brought uh, is quite impressive, and they have created freedoms for all of us. And Justin Chaplinsky is actually, which is the fighting word's case, is a Jehovah's Witness case. I think he called him a racketeer. That was the fighting word. Um, Minersville v. Gobitis, which is, which is what West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett overturned. And my personal favorite, Woolley v. Maynard, which is when a Jehovah's Witness did not want to have live free or die on his license plate. And rarely will you find someone who will take that all the way to the Supreme Court unless they have their religious convictions. But there's, of course, there's much more to do, religion and more broadly, freedom of conscience, which of course, as the judge mentioned, is broader than this, is increasingly under the tack. In our increasingly secular world, many people have turned to a kind of eco-spiritualism, democracy, fetishism, that increasingly looks like a religion, and ironically now, The supposedly tolerant left have become the new Puritans policing sexual intimacy like Victorians once policed women's ankles and constantly searching for heretics and witches in the form of microaggressions and intellectual and verbal conformity. We might need some new Roger Williamses to to, uh, explain to them what sort of separation needs to take place between church and state. Now, we need tolerance more than ever in a time of increasing diversity. During the mid-1550s, after Catholicism had reacquainted itself in the form of Bloody Mary or Queen Mary in England, and she was in the process of burning at the stake about 300 Protestants. A uh, archdeacon of, the, of Winchester named John Philpott found himself in a jail cell for heresy where he met an Arian. And if you're familiar with the old heresy of Arianism, it denies the Trinity and it was quite common at the time. Uh, in his words, he then met a true heretic and he spit in his face. Later, before he was burned at the stake in 1555, he decided he needed to write about how to vindicate why he spit in the face of the Arian, in, in a title, with a tract with this title, An Apology of John Philpot," ri- written for spitting upon an Arian, with an invective against Arians, the very natural children of Antichrist, with an admonition to all that be faithful in Christ to beware of them and of other late sprung heresies as of most enemies of the gospel, those great titles of 16th century literature. Now, it's similar, around that same time, there was another uh, Arian named Michael Servetus who found himself confronted with John Calvin's sort of theocratic Geneva, which eventually found him and John Calvin pairing off in a debate over the Trinity, which he, of course, lost, and he also was burned at the stake now both of these, but of course in Michael Servetus's word, he maintained that there were heretics all over who were incorrigible and obdurate and they're wrong and should be put to death and moderate punishments for other types of heresy. So this brings up the sort of irony which has been mentioned a couple times today that the victims of intolerance are often, the victims of intolerance are often, often intolerant themselves and would not have recognized the rights of what they viewed as heresies. Thus the religious toleration is different than religious freedom. Religious toleration implies that there's a gift that you give to you allow them to have their belief, as opposed to quotes that the judge said, wherein the, the freedom of conscience is actually an area over which the state has no justified control. And this became this liberty of conscience became something very important for the growth of freedom in the Western world, in America in particular. Herbert Spencer, another 19th century Liber- libertarians, early libertarians, they opposed the welfare state on the, on the grounds that it violated the freedom of conscience. Early English dissenters, of the, such as the levelers, they campaigned against schemes of state education on the grounds that it violated freedom of conscience. One of the great opponents of state education at that time was actually Joseph Priestley, the discoverer of oxygen. So now we understand how freedom of religion helps create freedom in other spheres, especially a freedom of conscience. Slowly you go from making just a religious claim to a claim for freedom of conscience where you build up a sphere of liberty for other action. And it's that kind of sphere of liberty that grew from religious tolerance to religious freedom to helping enjoy many of the, many of the freedoms we have today into a coherent theory of freedom of conscience. And so that freedom started to become a reality, but of course it will require eternal vigilance to maintain I thank you all for attending this afternoon. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I myself have learned a ton. Uh, we had a good time putting it on, and uh, conference adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>